Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey. This is High Performance, our conversation for you every single week. You're listening to the podcast that reminds you that it's within your ambition, your purpose, your story. It's all there. We just help to unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. And this is the third and latest episode of our CEO series in partnership with PwC. And the whole point about this series about being a CEO is that we want to tell the truth about leadership. I think there are so many toxic messages out there at the moment about saying, work harder, find your passion, use every minute of every day that, you know, the new generation don't know what hard work is and they're not good for the workplace. But here's the truth. You can be a leader and be happy. You can be a CEO and still be mindful. You can be successful and still put your mental health and your well-being and yourself first. We need to change this conversation around toxic working cultures and I really hope that this CEO series can help us to do that. And today I'm really excited actually to bring you someone who isn't a multi-billionaire, isn't someone who had entrepreneurship coursing through her veins from the age of 11 and set up 15 businesses and exited them for inordinate sums of money. Today we speak to someone who is at the front line of improving our society and these are also the leaders that we should be celebrating. Today, we welcome to High Performance someone who's just been integral to helping deliver the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham. This episode of the CEO series is with the current interim chief executive of Birmingham City Council, Deborah Cadman, OBE. And there'll be decisions in your career and in your life where it's unknown and it's scary, and but instinctively you'll know that it's, it's the right thing to do. I regularly kind of talk to young women because I think that's really important. You know, I talk to them about the things they need to do to find their way in the world. But but the most important thing is you've got to work hard. In my experience, women are far better working across organisations collaboratively than some of my male colleagues. I'm led to believe that the most powerful person in the room is the person that's got nothing to lose, and that's you. You know what? I think Deborah has got a really cool story. And actually, people like Deborah are people that we should celebrate. We've got to be so careful just putting people in huge houses and driving around in Ferraris and talking about their EBIT and their turnover and their incredible wealth on a, on a pedestal. Sometimes we have to put someone on a pedestal like Deborah, who's devoted her life to helping to improve the lives of others. But she's done it by being a leader. She's done it by understanding the power of communication, by bringing people together. And sometimes in the political arena, which is where she's operating, that can be such a difficult thing to do. So how has she done it? And what can we learn from her? I really hope you enjoy the latest episode of this CEO series of the High Performance Podcast. And it's brought to you by PwC. And we were keen to work with them because we believe that they often set the bar for leadership, for culture, for inclusion, for the future of work. And their purpose is to help build trust and solve those important problems. And their global strategy, the new equation, is bringing this to life for their clients, for people and society by combining technology with human ingenuity, passion and experience. They work with organisations to deliver more intelligent, sustained outcomes. So what's the intelligence that's delivered sustained outcomes for Deborah Cadman? You're about to hear from the Chief Exec of Birmingham City Council on the High Performance Podcast CEO Special. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of High Performance. Let's start as we always do. What does high performance really mean to you? I think it means 
being the best you can and rocking up every day to work to do a good job. But also high performance means that, that you never quite achieve it. So my view is it doesn't matter how senior I am, how brilliant people think I am. I need to understand I can always be better. So no resting on laurels. Absolutely not. And I became a chief exec 18 years ago and um, worked for a number of different organisations. And and the world is a very different place now than it was 18 years ago. So, you know, it's about keeping current. It's about renewing. It's about reframing. It's about refreshing. And it's always, always about striving to be better. So what would you say has been the biggest change in the 18 years since you took on that leadership role then, Deborah? I think certainly for the public sector, it's an acknowledgement that people don't live their lives in neat and tiny boxes. So some of the, you know, some of our population, you know, have really complex, tricky lives. And the city council cannot respond to those tricky lives on its own. So so I've noticed a real shift to looking at systems leadership rather than being focused on leadership of one particular organisation. So it, people's lives are interdependent. So, you know, if you have someone with mental health problems living in rubbish housing, you know, it's it's got to be a response from local government and the health service, for example. You know, seeing leadership change and adapt to that has been um, quite interesting. And that's the biggest shift, I think, since over the, the last 18 years. So that sounds to me then that that's a shift of leadership of where you have to almost influence organisations where you actually don't carry any status or necessarily any credibility. Is that an accurate read? I think that's absolutely right. And it's 100% harder, I think, uh, you know, working in that collaborative way is really difficult. And and I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, in my experience, women are far better working across organisations collaboratively than some of my male colleagues. So share with us, please, what are we doing wrong that you wonderful women are getting right? <laughs> it's, it's not so much what you're doing wrong. It's just, do you know, I think, I think women are more prepared to come to the table and say, OK, how, this isn't a zero-sum game. It's not about you win, I lose. This has got to be about how we find that point of... Uh, similarity and you know we come to the table saying okay there's a there's a problem here let's find the solution and I think women are generally more prepared to do that in my experience. I wonder whether part of the problem here is that actually men can work in that same way as women but traditionally those kinds of people haven't been promoted in the workplace and I think that often the people that get to the top of the tree are the ones that are bombastic and loud and the loudest person in the room quite often, whereas sometimes it's the deeper thinkers that get left behind that are the ones that can be more impactful, maybe. I get what you mean. And, you know, I, I think what you've described is predominantly what people would class as male attributes, male leadership kind of skills, really. And, and I, I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, working in a more collaborative, cross-organisational way lends itself I think more to to female leadership styles. So tell us how you do it then Deborah. So you're walking into a meeting with a, diff- a chief exec of a different organisation and you sense that there's maybe a, a desire to show their credentials to bring their ego into the room. How do you mitigate against that and actually create a culture where that win-win mentality then does start to permeate? I think the first thing is is about understanding why we're in the room in the first place and and invariably it's because there's a problem there's a challenge you know certain members of our communities are experiencing difficulties 
So it's about being clear about why we're in the room. It's understanding what the the challenge is and getting everybody starting from the same place. This is a challenge we all have a role in solving. And then saying, okay, well, how do we solve it collectively? I'm the one that kind of talks about the inconvenient truths, really. And, and I'm always trying to bring people back to, well, let, let's just understand why, what, what we're trying to do here and what we're trying to achieve. But it is about bringing people back to why are we doing this? And actually, nine times out of 10, it's not about us. It's about, you know, people in our communities who need our services most. So you're describing there having a really powerful sense of purpose or being able to answer the why. So what would you say your role as a leader is then in answering that question? So in Birmingham, what is your why? So the purpose is, and and I'm absolutely clear about this, the purpose is about delivering the best services we can to meet the needs of our communities. Our wages are paid through a variety of local taxation, council tax and central government kind of funding. And we are paid to deliver a service to local people. Therefore, it's really important that we continuously hear the heartbeat of both our people and our places. So the way you were describing that sense of purpose and Deborah sort of made me think that a lot of the services that you offer and the difference that you make to lives is only noticed when you don't deliver it. So there'll be a lot of people that only pay attention to what you do when the system breaks down or it fails or it doesn't work effectively rather than the moments when it does. So how do you cope with that where often the focus only lies on you when failure occurs rather than when success does? I would turn that around. And yes, of course, we have to deal with failure. So we look after children, and that's one of the most heartbreaking parts of of my job, I would argue. But we will always be in a, a position where we have to look after children because they're not able to be looked after and protected in, in their homes and with their families. The council is now looking at ways in which we can intervene earlier. We can prevent that happening in the first place. Now, that's a real challenge because... You know, people will always be in crisis and we will always have to respond to that. But I want us to break out of that cycle of continuously having to deal with failure. I would much rather invest time in preventing and supporting communities so they can live productive lives and not have to rely on on council services. And that's a really brilliant point. I don't know if you've read the book by Dan Heath called Upstream. No, I haven't. That says that if you go further upstream, so you can tell if you were to reallocate resources, say, that you give to anti-smoking campaigners by actually going far earlier into the process of educating kids in school, the health issues can be saved 20 years down the line, but you're actually judged by how you deliver performance today rather than in 20 years' time. So how do you balance that as a leader of being able to focus on immediate issues while actually trying to mitigate and prevent them for future leaders that come after you? That is the biggest challenge. One of the, Well, one of the biggest challenges that I'm experiencing at the moment, because it's not just taking decisions to divert money away at a council level. It's also about that systems leadership that I was talking about. You know, if there are health issues with some of our children, if they're obese, if they, you know, they can't read and write by the time they go to school, it's not just education or the local authority, it's also about health as well. You know, the cost of living, I think, will have an impact on the future of some of our young people in in the city. And, you know, they're exposed and they're vulnerable and, you know, potentially kind of influenced by other factors that would lead them down a path of criminal activity. And I don't want to stereotype our young people, not at all, but but it's something that we have to think about because we know it's coming our way. So we, we have to put the building blocks in right now to stop that negative impact. But it can't be 
the city council that does that on its own, it's got to be working partnership in that system of delivery. But what I'm interested in, Deborah, is how do you persuade people to join that same page as you rather than, you know, firefighting's addictive, I can imagine. The idea of rushing in and dealing with a crisis when it's right in front of your face is incredibly satisfying. How do you shift that focus to look at it from a more longer term point of view? Two things. One is about the economics of it. It's the money. And very often the money will drive activity and delivery. But the second has to be that moral purpose that we spoke about earlier. We know that if we intervene and support and prevent people dipping into crisis, the future of their lives will be so much better. You know, people say, well, you know, we, we're not going to be able to afford that. But my response is very clearly, can we afford not to? So, you know, a third of our kids not being school ready, you know, if we don't intervene, that is a third of potentially a third of our working population not being in a, in a position to, to take advantage of job opportunities that are coming on stream in 15, 16, 17 years time. Well, I remember reading a really interesting start that said in America, they, they build prisons they predict how many prisons will be needed to be built based on the illiteracy levels of people leaving school. So they can almost predict that five, ten years down the line, people that can't read or write are somehow going to find themselves in the criminal system. But surely it's better to just invest money in, in education, supporting families and kids. You know, if you know that that's potentially going to be the outcome and it's going to be high cost and people's futures are going to be damaged or limited then, you know, do something about it now. Deborah, I listen to you speak and I just think, how do you not become overwhelmed with a job on your hands? Like, I've got two children and it keeps me awake at night trying to see them down the right path. We, you're talking about the lives of tens of thousands of young people in the city that you're in charge of. What sort of techniques or tips have you learned not to allow the scale of the job to overwhelm you? I think it's about being able to put it in perspective as well and just gaining that sense of resilience as well. And, and, and certainly since I've done this job, it's kind of physical fitness as well as kind of mental well-being is really, really important to me. But it is about keeping it in perspective. And, you know, when something happens, you know, everybody kind of goes up, you know, oh, they all flap about. And I kind of say, look, let, let's just chill your beans a bit. Let's not have a knee-jerk reaction. Let's just understand what this is really about. Let's be thoughtful. Let's be tactical. Let's do the right thing at the right time for the right reason, rather than just this knee-jerk reaction. So have you got a set of questions that you always ask yourself when you're in this crisis mode or something where you know they are the right, they're the right places for you to go mentally at the beginning to get to the place you want to get to? Sometimes you've got to be really brave about some of these things because the decisions will be different and out of the norm. And there'll be decisions in your career and in your life where it's unknown and it's scary, and, but instinctively you'll know that it's, it's the right thing to do. And then it's about being uh, curious. Some people could say it's being troublesome, but I, I'd rather call it curious, really, and ask questions about, you know, the status quo. And, you know, if stuff isn't working, then why are you doing it in the same way that you've always done it? I'm just curious to know. So being a little bit disruptive and a little bit curious about, about constantly trying to understand and refine and improve. And then the third one really is about being true. And, and what I mean by that, it's about, you know, doing the right thing for the right reason and, and, and certainly working in the kind of environment that's, that's political, both with a big and a small P, it's complicated, it's difficult, it's, you know, you're having to work with different levels of governance. You can be buffeted a bit, you know, in my world, I'm, and, and in my, the way I, in which I work, I'm, I'm really 
thoughtful about doing the right thing. And does having that North Star that you follow and or a really firm belief in the sort of the courage of your convictions, you know you're making a decision for the right reasons, does that also help alleviate something else that absolutely comes your way when you're in a position that you're in, which is that scrutiny, the questioning, the, the public opinion, the newspaper stories, whatever it might be, so that you're able to say, look, whatever happens, I know that I made this decision with the very best of intentions rather than being swayed by other people. 100%. I'm in a, in a position now where I'm far more confident and I think I've got far more credibility than I had 18 years ago. So making those decisions is a, is a little bit easier for me, really. There are times when it, it can still be tough, really. But, but my view is, you know, I have, to, I have to go home at night and sleep with myself at night. And, you know, there are lines beyond which, which I don't think any of us should be prepared to step, actually, if they're the wrong, the wrong lines. So what element of your job brings you the biggest... And I'm talking about you personally, really. I know there are huge, you know, socioeconomic issues in Birmingham that will worry you and, and keep you awake at night, maybe. But from a personal perspective, what, what element of the job causes you concern? What's the area that you are sort of least comfortable with? The thing that keeps me awake at night is uh, the future of our kids. You know, we're the youngest, the youngest place in Europe. You know, 40% of our population are under the age of 25. So what's really important for me is that all the brilliant investment that's that's being made in Birmingham at the moment and it is phenomenal and the Commonwealth Games will will improve that it's about making sure that all that investment is done in an inclusive way where they invest just as much in the community and the people as they do in the physical place but it is you know just making sure that all that brilliant investment means something for our young people so they they want to stay they want to work they want to live in this brilliant city and i'm very interested in what's got you to the place you're at today deborah i read a a great quote where you said being impatient was important. You couldn't wait for openings in organisations, so you would attack and go for another organisation and get different experiences. That sounds very similar to how you've just described how you lead people. You know, you're inquisitive, you look for different ways, you, you don't just follow the status quo. How important was it to have that, not just the drive, but the bravery to go, I'm going to leave and go somewhere else when you were embarking on your career? So early in the career, it was, it was really tough. You know, I've got two wonderful children who are my absolute pride and joy. And, you know, being a working mother, it's not as easy to just say, okay, I'm going to commute to London every day when we lived in Suffolk. It wasn't easy at all. And, you you know, you've got to have a supportive environment. I had a partner who was just beyond brilliant and did his share of, of the work. But that's never easy. And I would never criticise for somebody who didn't make that choice. Because let me tell you, it was one of the hardest things that I I had to do. But being able to make some of those choices and work in London, you know, in central government and in, in the Audit Commission was a br- brilliant kind of springboard to, to my career. And also, you know, being um, encouraged, you know, I've, I've always been surrounded by really great, strong women who have been brilliant mentors for me, you know, and having them kind of pushing and, and supporting me to the next step was fantastic. But one of the comments you made earlier in your answer, Deborah, was talking about the confidence that you've developed now that maybe you didn't have 18 years ago. And I'm interested in what type of advice you would give somebody that might be in the same position that you were 18 years ago. They wouldn't start out on, they have huge ambitions. How have you developed that confidence to then make those brave decisions that have paid off for you? I think it's really important to acknowledge that you are only ever as good as the people you work with. That's 
true now, more so now than it was at the beginning, really. But working with great people who want the best for you and the organisation and service was really empowering, actually, and gave me confidence to move. But but also, I, you know, I don't want people to think that you can achieve this, that the level that I've got to without working hard. And when I talk to groups of young people and, you know, I, I regularly kind of talk to young women because I think that's really important. You know, I talk to them about the things they need to do to find their way in the world. But, but the most important thing is you've got to work hard. I did a degree when I was still breastfeeding my daughter, you know, and it was tough and it was really difficult. But actually the, the benefit of doing that has, has paid itself back in spades, you know, d- doing an economics degree, master's degree. And, and that's been a really good basis for my working career. So, yeah, yes, you, you, you know, you have to be flexible. You have to be brave. You have to make decisions. You, you have to take the rough with the smooth. But actually it all boils down to you working hard and wanting to be better. Where did that desire come from? Were you born with that, that desire to succeed? I'm the only girl with three brothers. So it was always massively competitive in my, in my family. You know, everything was sorted out by a punch or a bit of a scrap. So it was always, it was always a bit of a competitive. We were a sporty family as well. So we were always, you know, pretty competitive. But also, do you, do you know, there's that sense of injustice. You know, I, I, I played netball and went to to Loughborough and what a brilliant opportunity that was really but but there were lots of people that didn't have those opportunities you know and and I remember leaving my my county team and and going off to university and having great opportunities and you know playing sport in a brilliant environment yet leaving behind you know some of my friends who would never have had you know just didn't have the opportunity to do that and and I felt really angry about that you know so that that sense of injustice has, has kind of driven me really to to make sure that I will do as much as I can to try and address some of that injustice. I am interested to talk about injustice because only 25% of chief execs in the public sector are female, yet 50% of the workforce are female. So we have a lot of business leaders that listen to this podcast. How can we help them to create a more diverse workforce and support women in the way they should be? Do you know, it's, it's really, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and talking about this and talking to women about this. And do you know, sometimes women, some of my friends, some of my colleagues will say, do you know, this is just too hard. You know, the environment that we have to work with, the public scrutiny, the treatment that we we receive both, for, you know, from the media, from the public, it is just too hard. And if we don't need to do it, then we won't. They are more willing to walk away, I think, from this than than the men will be, really. So that's the first thing. The, the, the second thing is that not not all organizations are, you know, create conditions where women don't feel that they're they're welcome. And, you know, there are a number of organizations, private sector organizations that I work with, which are beyond brilliant. You know, PwC are one of those actually, really thoughtful about giving people opportunities, valuing people, being thoughtful about the things that women feel that they need in order to to do their job and to aspire and to to gain promotion. Now, some of that might be childcare. And I'm I'm always reluctant to align childcare with women because, you know, if you're a parent, you know, Jake, if you've got two kids, I would expect you to take 50% of the responsibility for looking after your kids. So to continuously say, you know, childcare is a woman's problem or the payment of childcare is, you know, needs to come out of a women's salary. It's not, it's not right. But equally, having access to good quality childcare has got to be a really important thing. And then, 
just acknowledging that if women are pregnant, then they're not ill. It's not a medical condition. And being thoughtful about if they do take maternity leave, then, then they still feel connected to the organisation so that, that when they come back, they don't have that agonising self-doubt about, am I still good enough, which a lot of women, women do. So there are things like that that I think companies can do much better. And, and I think COVID, unfortunately, did expose really poor working practices. And if you look at the amount of women who lost their jobs during COVID, it was, it was a scandal, actually, because it was felt that they were the easiest people to let go. So can you describe to us then, in, in a succinct manner, what the type of culture you would want to have and to lead would be? An organisation that has a culture that values everybody, an organisation that appreciates what people bring to work, but equally an organisation that has high expectations and an organisation that places people at the heart of everything that it does, both as a workforce, but also in terms of, of what we deliver. You know, our community has to be at the heart of everything that we do. So how would you rate your current culture then against that benchmark? We're not there yet. There is still a job to be done. And, and I mean, I've been in the organisation just over a year now and we're better, but we're not good enough. I would like to think that the Commonwealth Games has given the organisation huge confidence. People said four years ago, Birmingham City Council will never pull this off. And we have. It's, it's been delivered in time and also in budget, which is phenomenal. And the way in which the City Council has been able to deliver what will be the best Commonwealth Games ever is because everybody started from the right place. Everybody was involved in a conversation about what do we want for these Commonwealth Games, but more importantly, what do we want for the city from these Commonwealth Games? Somebody that I worked with, it was Mo Molan. She was the most phenomenal woman. And, and I can always remember her saying to me, you know, Debbie, it doesn't matter how important you are. It's really important that you know the names of the people that staff the reception, who clean your bins, who clean your toilets, who answer your phone, because they are the people that will keep you where you are. And how have you squared off the fact that obviously that then increases the pressure on you, doesn't it? Because it's amazing that you are the lady charged with running the city during the Commonwealth Games. But then in five years' time, everyone will be going, well, Deborah was in charge when the Commonwealth Games happened. So what's the legacy? That's the, that's the kind of next, next stage. You know, we can all see you're delivering an amazing Commonwealth Games. So being able to demonstrate to residents that it's money well spent is really, really important. And we do that through legacy. We do that by ensuring that local people have the opportunity to take advantage of, of what's going on at the moment. But, but equally, we can deliver community-based sports. We can deliver community-based culture. We want to make sure that we continue to invest in, in community-based cultural programmes. So we've got lots of local groups choirs, bands, dance groups. We want to make sure that they continue to kind of develop that. And then, of course, we've got community-based sports as well. And, you know, one of the things that gave me the greatest pleasure was seeing some little Muslim girls with boxing gloves having a go at, at boxing and saying, we love this. And, you know, mummy, can I, can I join a club and can I continue to box? How brilliant is that? And that's the kind of stuff that I want to see as part of the legacy of this. And then, of course, there's the business side. And, you know, we've got lots of visitors from Commonwealth countries, investors that are taking the opportunity to come and visit the city. And again, we need to land that investment into the city as part of our legacy. 
I love all that stuff. That is the legacy right there. Can I go back to when you mentioned earlier on about keeping fit? Because it kind of ties into the Commonwealth Games. I think we don't have conversations often enough on high performance with people like you, leaders. We talk all about your work ethic and the hours in the office and the graft and the hard work. And I think sometimes we can leave people not realising that you need time for yourself as well. How do you get that balance right? I'm not the greatest example of work-life balance, although I do I do understand it's really, really important. And I know that if I'm if I'm tired, I'm not on my game, then I'm not doing my job well enough. So I I box, actually, which is why it gave me so much pleasure to see these little girls. So I've got um, a boxing instructor, ex-professional boxer, and um, two mornings a week at six o'clock, we box. I don't do competitive. I'm too old for that. But I can't tell you how therapeutic it is to just punch the shit out of a, you know, out of the pads or a a bag. It's great mentally, but as well as physically, a physical exercise as well. I love it. I absolutely love it. But it also gives me a sense of confidence as well. Now, I come from a boxing background. So what metaphors would you draw from boxing that you apply to being the chief exec? You know, I see it as a, as a game of 3D chess. You know that a lot of it is about anticipating the next move. And, and a lot of that as well is trying to understand people, people's motivations. You know, do they, do they want to smack me? Do they want to set me up to fail? And that sounds really negative. And my whole life isn't, isn't around anticipating people trying to set me up to fail. But, but you know, it, it is about that. It is, are they drawing me in for, for something? And I've got to be really thoughtful about that. But it is about uh, anticipation. It's about un- understanding motivation. And it's about, being one, one step ahead, I guess. And you say that you are not the best example of getting work-life balance right. I think sometimes the people who haven't necessarily got it right are the best ones to give us advice. So what advice would you give to someone maybe starting out on their career to get that part of life right? You have to understand the culture of the organisation. There will be some organisations that are really embracing of people taking time off. And, and it's, all, it's all messed up now, isn't it? It's all messed up with COVID and people working from home and... It's not a similar environment to, to the one that I started working, really. But even if you're working from home, I think it's really important for you to demonstrate that you're doing your job. But equally, when I was working from home at the height of COVID, you know, for some reason, I found myself working more hours working from home than I did in the office. So I did have to be quite purposeful in saying, you know, that I will have breaks because literally in my Fitbit, you know, I'd be doing like 800 steps a day. But equally, what I say to parents as well, you know, if you want to take a break at three o'clock and pick your kids up from school and then connect again at eight o'clock when, they're, when they've gone to bed and work for another couple of hours, that's, that's fine. You know, if that's the easiest way for you to do your job, then that's not a problem. But I don't expect you to work through, through to eight o'clock at night. That's just not acceptable because I, I won't get the best out of them. Can I ask you a question then that's a little bit more personal? It's about your relationship with Jeff, your husband, sorry. I wondered like, which one, one you fact that, Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not that other Jeff. This uh, your husband, Jeff. Like the story that took out of me was when he succeeded you as chief exec at St. Edmundsbury Council. I'm just fascinated about how you handled that transition period and linking it to that work-life balance question Jake asked. How did you switch off from work when you knew all the same characters and the same the same environments. I would say it took us a month to come to the conclusion that that we should never ever ever talk about work after he got that job. It was just madness because we're very different people. We've got very different leadership styles and different views on 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 the world. And you know, he'd he'd kind of come home and talk to me about what he. And I'd be saying, "What have you done that for?" And he'd be like, "Say, well, we just came to a conclusion." 
it wouldn't work if we if we talked about the job in that way. But after having said that, having somebody who appreciates and understands the world that I work in has been profoundly helpful and supportive. Because that was what I was going to ask you, like, so how do you manage that relationship where you can actually help and guide and mentor each other without getting dragged into the detail and failing to switch off? I think because the world we, we operate in is quite tricky. And, and what I would say is um, my husband doesn't work in local government anymore, but he still appreciates the politics, both with a big and a small p. And it is really helpful at times to kind of say, I'm really troubled by this. Can I just talk about it? You know, and, and nine times out of 10, he doesn't say, oh, yeah, you're doing it really. He'll challenge me and, and ask me probing questions and help me come to a different conclusion, which is profoundly helpful. But what I would also say is I've got a coach as well, which uh, he's very challenging of me, actually, which is what, what I want. And what's the brief with that coach? Is it like, what brief do you give him to coach you? To make me better as a chief exec. Actually, I'll tell you that what is really helpful for our listeners to this is a couple of the things you've discussed with him that it might be worth people asking the same question of themselves that made you go, oh, I'd never even considered that before. Do you think that's really tricky? Because we talk about such a lot of things, really. I think it's about how I deal with tricksy people issues, I think, and then how I uh, navigate my way through central government as well. He just continuously asks me, so why have you done that? Why do you think that? Why do you think that's the best course of action? There have been a couple of occasions where he's given me advice and guidance, which which has been invaluable, really. But he's always made me come to the, the right conclusion rather than giving me the answer. And I think that's a sign of a really good coach that asks the questions why, challenges some of your perceptions and leads you to a place where there's a light bulb moment and you say, oh, I get it now. Yeah, I understand. Can you give us an example of one of those light bulb moments? What was a light bulb moment for you that said, I've been doing it one way and I now realise that there's a different way? So one of the things he said to me was, when I was being reticent about making a decision, because it was a big decision, and I said, oh, I'm not, I'm not sure I'll be able to carry this through. And, you know, he kind of said to me, Deborah, you know, listening to what you're saying and appreciating and understanding the context, I'm led to believe that the most powerful person in the room is the person that's got nothing to lose, and that's you. And you're not seeing the power and influence that you've got and you're not using it properly. And that was a light bulb moment. I thought, God, yeah, he's right. What's the worst that could happen? Or I never understood that until he said it to me and explained it to me in that way. That's really helpful. Um, we've reached a point, Deborah, where we're going to uh, bring you our quick fire questions. And I know your son listens to the podcast. What, what's his name? Jordan. Jordan, shout out for Jordan at this yeah. point. He'll know what's coming your way. Let's see how your mum goes. Now, I also need to mention my daughter who's India because there will be hell on if yeah, I mention fine. Jordan and not India. Is India also a high-performance listener? Yes, she is, actually. Well, let's see what they make of these then and whether they agree with them. Your three non-negotiable behaviours, Deborah, that you and the people around you need to buy into. Be kind and thoughtful. Listen and put stuff in perspective. Don't go into, you know, flappy mode. Chill your beans for 10 seconds and think things through. I love that. I think chill your beans should be the title of this episode, Damien. <laughs> it should be. What advice would you give to a teenage Deborah just starting out? 
Do you know, one of the biggest regrets I've got is that um, I, I had the, the, one of the best opportunities ever to be a world-class netball player and I didn't take it because I just wanted to play about and have a good time and, you know, just enjoy university life, really. So my advice to the 18-year-old me is just understand and appreciate what you've got at the time and take advantage of it and see it for what it is rather than you know, mess about. Make mistakes that you can sort and resolve, but don't make mistakes where you have massive regrets. You know, it's difficult, isn't it, when you're a teenager to to appreciate that. What is your biggest strength and what do you think is your greatest weakness? I think I'm honest. I think I'm probably too honest for my own good, really. But I do think that's a strength. And also understanding that feeling, you know, I talk about the heartbeat and I don't, I don't say that glibly. And what I mean by that is, you know, I can't do my job if I don't understand how it feels and both at an organisational level, at a place level, really. So being, being prepared to, to listen and, and get immersed and, and involved and, you know, hear what people are saying. I think that's, that's a, a, a strength. And my biggest weakness, I think I can be a bit too impatient. Yeah, impatience, I think is a, a weakness. I'm less impatient than I was. I think I'm a bit more chilled than, than I used to be. But yeah, I can be very impatient, which is not great. Where were you? Where are you? And where are you going? I think I've been in a good place. And I've been in a good place because I've been surrounded by good people. I've benefited from that. And I've been very fortunate. Where am I? I'm in a really exciting place. And it, it well, it's, it's exciting and terrifying in equal measure, I think. But on balance, I'm in a good place. And it's really exciting. And post-Commonwealth, you, you know, we're, it feels like we're on a crest of a wave here. And, you know, we're really shifting the dial on a whole range of things, both at an organisational level, a perception level, a reputational level, and a, a delivery level. So it's really, really exciting. But it's, it's not fragile, but, it, it, you know, we've got to keep our foot on the accelerator. And that's exhilarating and slightly terrifying. And where, where do I want to be? I want to be in a place where I look back and say... Yeah, I made a difference. Lovely. And your one final message to our listeners to this podcast, your one final golden rule for living a high-performance life after all the things you've learned over your 18 years as chief exec and the years before that. Don't settle for less than the best. Brilliant. It's a lovely way to end. Deborah, thank you so much for giving us your time on this episode. You know what? You've reminded me of my dad quite a lot on this because my dad... Oh, my God! In the nicest possible way. Let me explain. Let me explain. Because he he worked in the public sector and I always just sort of... I spent my teenage years just thinking, yeah, but Dad, you could, you know, you could leave the public sector, go in the private sector and earn loads more money or do other things and stop worrying about trying to help people and change the world all the time. And I wish I'd spent more of my time when I was younger saying, Dad, I'm so proud of you for wanting to change the world and wanting to make things better. And I think, you know, let me say that to you. Thank without you. people like you, you could easily go and quadruple your salary, work in the private sector and, you know, buy a bigger house or whatever you do with that money. But you clearly have a real deep desire to make the world a better place and it shines through. So well done. It's been a, a pleasure to spend time with you. And um, I've got a job that uh, is a real privilege, actually. So I'm blessed. But thank you for your time. It's been great fun. Damien. Jake. What did you think? Oh, I loved it. I loved their energy. I loved their sense of purpose and uh i just love some of the lessons that she shared with us i've really enjoyed these ceo conversations because we're talking to people who are not just responsible for themselves and quite often on this podcast we talk to people responsible for themselves right you know athletes is a is a prime example or entrepreneurs you know at the top of a business 
Whereas she's responsible for an entire organisation, a really diverse organisation, quite a challenging organisation. So getting that job right is a really, really big ask, isn't it? Yeah, and that phrase that she shared with us really resonated when she said she saw her job as creating an environment where magic can happen. And I think that's what so many great leaders seem to understand. It's about focusing on that message. We keep coming back to one here, creating a culture where people feel that they can liberated to be themselves. And that's where the real value starts to become evident. I think there was also a real sense from Deborah of how much she's changed over the years and that it would have been a very different conversation with Deborah 18 years ago when she started out as a chief exec. And I think there's, that's also a good lesson for people listening to this. You know, if they're 21, 22 or even 31 or 32 and they hear that kind of conversation, they hear the clarity that Deborah shares and then they, they think, well, why am I, why don't I feel like that? Why am I not in that place? You know, Things take time. Some of the best things take a really long time. Yeah. One of my favourite um, writers is uh, Adam Grant, who talks about the idea of the sign of an intelligent mind is your ability to change that mind, to sometimes be presented with different facts, different experiences, and to therefore make different decisions that you would have done. And I think that was a really good example of that from Deborah of talking of first becoming a chief exec 18 years ago and how she'd be a very different leader uh, then that she was now but surely that's not a sign of weakness it's a sign of intelligence and strength really good enjoyed it mate yeah i did too thanks jake well i really hope that you enjoyed that episode as always huge thanks to pwc for helping to bring these ceo conversations to life thank you very much for deborah for sharing all that incredible insight about life and about work and about family and about non-negotiables i thought it was fantastic um but the biggest thanks of all goes to you for growing and sharing this podcast among your community please continue to spread the learnings you're taking from this series if you can do me one thing it would just be to hit the follow button wherever you're listening to this podcast and don't forget you can find out more about us at thehighperformancepodcast.com thanks to the whole team for their hard work thanks to you for your support remember there is no secret it is all there for you so chase world-class basics don't get high on your own supply Remain humble, curious and empathetic and we'll see you very soon. 